Well, I am, I am sure that I have benefited more from uh, Fred's encouragement than he has from mine over the years, and I am grateful to the elders for uh, inviting me and Anna to speak with you this weekend. Um, it's a Friday night uh, in 2019, and you're here to listen to me give a monologue about a guy that lived 200 some years ago, so that makes you weird. That makes you very weird. But I hope that this will be a blessing to you. As Fred noted, um, when we talked about what we would do, since I'm not a a foreign missionary, I was a home missionary for 10 years uh, in South Georgia. I planted the church that I pastored for 10 years um, from scratch in 2009, and the Lord was very gracious to sustain that and establish that. Um, And as we talked about this and we talked about what would be beneficial to this church? As he's already noted, we said that we hope that we could encourage you to be thinking about foreign missions. And as I thought about uh, what might be an encouragement to that, I thought, let's go back and look at two of the most significant figures um, in the modern mission movement. William Carey, who is the father of modern missions, and David Brainerd, who really, in many respects is the one fueling William Carey and Jonathan Edwards and many others. And and my hope is that you may not know as much about these figures and you would leave here um, with a greater understanding of how God used these men and that that would serve as a platform for you to think through um, how he might use you in either partnering with foreign missions or in serving for some period of time in some way. So I want to talk tonight, and this is going to be more of a lecture. I'm a little bit out of my comfort zone. I like to preach, and so Sunday I will be hopefully uh, much more in my comfort zone preaching God's Word. But um, if you would bear with me, I'd like to uh, give you this talk on William Carey this evening. Let me pray for us before we look at this together. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we do thank you and praise you that you are God over all the earth. We thank you that you made a promise to Abraham that his descendants would be more numerous than the stars in the sky, more than the sand on the sea, and that you promised that the nations would come to the Son of Abraham, Jesus Christ. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you have fulfilled all those promises in yourself. We thank you that you have and that you are Spreading the gospel to the nations. We thank you even as we sit here so far from where you were crucified and risen. As believers, by the working of your spirit that you have fulfilled that promise. We pray that you would continue to fulfill that. We pray that you would bless uh, this talk this evening and what we consider. And we pray, our God, that you would stir up a zeal in us for the salvation of the lost. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, since his death in 1834, scholars have written over 50 biographies about William Carey. George Smith, in his 1885 publication, The Life of William Carey, explained the importance of this man, who we know as the father of modern missions, when he wrote, Amid the uncrowned kings of men who have made England what it is, there is Chaucer, the father of English verse, Wycliffe, the father of the evangelical reformation in all lands, Hooker, the father of English prose, Shakespeare, the father of English literature, Milton, the father of English epic, 
Bunyan, the father of English allegory, Newton, the father of English science, and Carey, the father of the Second Reformation through foreign missions. David Bevington, the great evangelical church historical scholar of our day, has recently made the bold assertion that William Carey, and I quote, is the second most important person in human history. I want you to think about that quote. David Bevington has said he is the second most important person in human history. So, who is William Carey? And what is it about William Carey and his work in India that gives him such a prominent place in the history of foreign missions and in the annals of church history? First and foremost, William Carey was the founder of the Baptist Missionary Society, the BMS, Uh, In 1792, we could say this evening that foreign missions and every foreign missionary that you support and that whole movement had its beginnings in 1792. I want you to think about that. Now, we would be right to say foreign missions have their beginning in the apostolic age. The book of Acts makes that very clear as the gospel goes to the heathens. But really, from after the first century until the very end of the 18th century, there is no foreign missionary movement in the world. That's astonishing. Uh, Carey found that together with a number of other pastors in the home of Mrs. B.B. Wallace. Um, <clears throat> the, BBS, the BMS was the product of the deep concern of 12 pastors for the spread of the gospel among the nations. Present at that meeting were the famed John Ryland. He was one of the famed Reformed Baptist ministers of the 18th century of Northampton. He incidentally baptized Carey on October 5th, 1783 in the River Nen, just outside of Northampton. Uh, There was present at that meeting, uh, Reynold Hogue of Thrapston, John Sutcliffe of Alney. Now here's two that you should have heard of. If you have not, you should know these names. Andrew Fuller of Kettering, one of the most renowned Reformed Baptist theologians in church history, and Samuel Pierce, his counterpart of Birmingham. Fuller served as the secretary of the BMS Society, and Hogue served as its treasurer. Now, what was it about this society that was important? This was the first international missionary society formed to to forge a movement for the spread of the gospel among the heathen nations. Now, there were groups before the BMS was founded. There was a group um, of Anglicans. uh, They had formed out of the Church of England the Society for the Propagation of the Gospel in the Foreign Parts. What made that different than the BMS is that it was a voluntary society, and it mostly focused on sending chaplains, clerical chaplains and religious literature to the British colonies. So any predecessor to the BMS was focused on, we might say, already reached people um, sending to Western society and to developed countries that already existed, and in a very real sense, only sending missionaries out to those who already had the gospel, already had Christian literature, already spoke the same vernacular as them. Then there were the Moravians. The Moravians were, of course, the disciples of Count uh, Nicholas von Zinzendorf out of Saxony in Germany, And they were really more or less a sect of Christendom. So in their own right, while they did much missionary work, they were not propagating the Protestant faith 
as we've come to embrace that and understand that, let alone reformed theology as Kerry and his colleagues were promoting through the BMS. Now, as a side note, you might ask about the reformers. Well, didn't the reformers engage in missions? Well, yes, the Reformation was a missionary movement. Um, John Calvin, in just nine years, oversaw 2,150 church plants in France. But we would have to say about the Reformation that it was a home missions, missionary movement in Europe. Now, Calvin had tried to send two missionaries to Brazil, but both of their labors failed, and they came back, and Geneva never sent out any other foreign missionaries. Now, there are all kinds of articles and um, dissertations written on uh, Calvin and Geneva and missions and whether he was a failure, whether he was success, whether what he was doing was uh, the most necessary way for propagating the gospel. But whatever we say, um, the reformers did not fuel a foreign missionary movement and that it really wasn't until William Carey that we actually have a missionary movement to the nations. Well, uh, let's consider together Carey's origins, what set him apart, and what motivated this man so, so long prized as being the father of modern missions. Uh, Carey was born on August 17, 1761 in Pollersbury, Northamptonshire, not very far from Bedford, England, if you looked on a map, and that's where John Bunyan was imprisoned, if you have read about John Bunyan very much. Uh, not very, very few miles from where Bunyan was in prison, Carey is born. Carey was born the son of a weaver. Not, not a very um, a prestigious family. His father was just a simple tradesman. Very humble origins. This is also very important for what we're going to talk about. Very humble origins. Um, William, though, grew up in a home in which literature was highly prized. His father would go on to be a schoolmaster at one point. He also served as the clerk in an Anglican parish. And to the best of our uh, knowledge, Carey, under his dad's own uh, uh, oversight, studied Latin and Greek, though he was not privileged uh, with the educational upbringing that so many who would go on and spend the better part of their lives in the academies in England were afforded. Carey doesn't grow up wealthy, doesn't grow up prestigious, isn't on his way to Oxford, isn't on his way to Cambridge, isn't on his way to Aberdeen. He grows up the son of a weaver in a home that was um, deeply, uh, deeply committed to Jesus Christ and yet a very humble and simple family. Carey would go on to serve as a cobbler. Now, this is very important. And I've, I've always thought how interesting that the father of modern missions served as a shoemaker. Because Isaiah, and then the Apostle Paul says, how beautiful are the feet. <laughs> how beautiful are the feet of those who bring the good news. <clears throat> Carey served as a cobbler actually through much of his missionary endeavors as a bivocational missionary. He never sort of let that trade fall by the wayside. For much of his adult life, he was engaged in it. 
Um, Carrie's Christian upbringing did finally lead on to his conversion when he was just 18 years of age. One of his friends in 1779 invited him to worship at Hackleton Independent Church, which was a dissenting church, a church that belonged to the separatists, not part of the Church of England, the Protestants that wanted more of a pure, um, a purist Reformed theology in their in their uh, doctrine, and under the preaching of the gospel there at Hackleton Independent Church, Kerry was converted. The church, as I said, was a dissenter church, part of the separatist movement of the 16th, 17th, and 18th century, and Kerry very quickly latches on to that sort of ecclesiology. He wants independency. He doesn't want a state-run church, an Erastian church. He doesn't want the government interfering in the mission of the church, and that's going to carry over both into William Carey's theology and also his philosophy of missions and the BMS as an independent mission society, thankfully, in this case. Now, um, not surprisingly, Carey, and we will forgive him for this, also came to embrace Baptistic convictions and um, didn't study quite enough uh, his predecessors and go quite far enough, but we will forgive him for that. Now, um, what was it about his theology? Let's consider briefly the animating theology behind William Carey and the foreign missionary movement. In Carey's day, the predominant theology of the particular Baptist was what has been termed high Calvinism. High Calvinism. Now, uh, Perhaps the simplest way for me to explain this is that uh, you, had, <clears throat> you had a litany of people who had functionally become hyper-Calvinist. They uh, believed, and, and Kerry is going to believe as well, that God chose some for salvation and he appointed others for damnation. All the Calvinists on the continent, by and large, are going to believe that. The high Calvinists are going to believe that the inability in men to believe the gospel is something natural. They have a natural inability. Carey and his colleagues are going to follow the moderate Calvinist in America and in England, most notably Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield, who are going to teach, and Edwards' freedom of the will is specifically the influencing a theological treatise that is going to impact Carey's uh, thought life, they are going to teach that the inability for men to believe the gospel is moral, not natural. The high Calvinists are going to say it's natural inability. The moderate Calvinists are going to say it is moral inability. Now that is supremely important because there is no foreign missions. Christ Church, Katy, Texas, does not support foreign missionaries if the high Calvinists are correct. The high Calvinists had no place for missions because they said it was pointless. If God chose some for, for salvation and he damned others sovereignly um, and he appointed others for damnation sovereignly, then there was no, if it was natural inability, there was no reason to preach the gospel. In fact, it was pointless to preach the gospel. Now, <clears throat> um, Coupled to Carey's concern about the dangers of the high Calvinism of his day was the fact that many of his contemporaries 
were insisting that Jesus only gave the Great Commission to the apostles. Now, this is serious. If you want to understand the modern foreign missionary movement, you have to understand that the better part of the theologically reformed in England in the Baptist world of Carey's day believed that the Great Commission was no longer for the church. This is just 220-some years ago. Um, Carey, very interestingly, had read uh, Jonathan Edwards' humble attempt. I think it's very interesting that Jonathan Edwards is really responsible in this sense for the modern foreign missionary movement. Uh, Edwards had written a humble attempt... And, excuse me, and uh, the full length of that title, so brace yourself, a humble attempt to promote explicit agreement and visible union of God's people in extraordinary prayer for the revival of religion and the advancement of Christ's kingdom on earth pursuant to scripture promises and prophecies concerning the last time. And, And I will note, they were very luxurious with the letters and the printing press back then considering the cost of that with these long titles, very luxurious. Um, What was, and this is why we shorthand this, the humble attempt, what was Jonathan Edwards' work, the humble attempt? Edwards was pursued that if God, he was convinced that if God was ever going to send revival on a global scale, and he believed that scripture taught that God would, I, I am not personally convinced that, uh, we'll talk about the post-millennial hope in a second, But Edwards was convinced that if that ever was going to happen, that there would have to be a concerted effort of ministers around the world praying together for that end. The humble attempt is his call, his theological call to that, published in 1744. And what Edwards does is he partners with uh, quite a number of Scottish theologians uh, for what became known as the Transatlantic Concert of Prayer. Um, uh, Edwards' foremost uh, partner in this transatlantic concert of prayer is a guy named John McLaren. And McLaren and Edwards are laboring together to pull people worldwide to be praying. And we know from William Carey's own works that he had read Edwards' humble attempt and that it had stirred him up to want to commit his life to seeing the Great Commission fulfilled. Now, before we talk any more about that, because that is supremely important in understanding the the modern foreign missionary movement, I want to talk about another event that happened in 1792. Well, in light of the deficiency among the majority of Baptists of Cary's day, Cary preached a sermon that has become known as the Deathless Sermon. By that, those that have termed it that mean it just keeps having an impact. The deathless sermon he preaches in 1792. um, And that sermon he preaches before a number of ministers at the Northamptonshire Baptist Association in Nottingham, England. And he preaches it on May 30th. And one scholar has said, historians have compared this sermon with that of Peter on the day of Pentecost in terms of its world-shaking consequences. Now, 
Not everybody that heard that sermon that day was happy. In fact, many were infuriated that Carrie was calling ministers of the gospel to commit themselves fully to seeing the Great Commission pursued. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine if your ministers were angry at your zeal to want to see the gospel spread to the better part of 7 billion people going to hell right now? I want you to think about that. 7 billion people, many of whom have no idea what the gospel is, don't know Jesus Christ. And if your pastors were angry, these ministers were angry, and yet there were ministers that were present there who were not angry, who were ecstatic, who were waiting for this moment, as it were. Um, I'm going to read to you uh, something about this. One of the fascinating things about this sermon is we don't have the manuscript. If you go Google it, you went home tonight, and you said, I want to find this sermon, and this is the great sermon that, uh, from which the motto, expect great things of God, attempt great things for God, is said to have come. And yet we don't have that sermon. You will not find a manuscript. You will not find any exposition of it. We don't know what William Carey said in that sermon, except that we know what text he preached it on, and we know a few things about the outline. The text was Isaiah 54, 2 through 3, which reads, Enlarge the place of your tent. Let them stretch out the curtains of your dwellings. Do not spare. Lengthen your cords. Strengthen your stakes, for you shall expand to the right and to the left, and your descendants will inherit the nations and make the desolate cities inhabited. I think that's an illusion, honestly, and uh, I think that's an illusion to what God says to Noah's sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth in Genesis 9, where he says that Japheth, who would be the father of many Gentiles, would come and dwell in the tents of Shem, who is the father of the Jewish people and ultimately the Redeemer. That's That's a prediction of the inclusion of the Gentiles. And here Isaiah is reflecting on that and talking about God enlarging the tent of his dwelling so that the nations could dwell in there. Uh, Carrie preaches this sermon. Samuel Pierce, who is present, who, as I've noted already, was part of the original group that formed the Baptist Missionary Society, wrote this about that sermon. Brother Carrie preached a very animating discourse from Isaiah 54, 3, 2 and 3, in which he pressed two things in particular. An ex- expository of lengthening our cords and strengthening our stakes. One, that we should expect great things. And two, that we should attempt great things. John Ryland, who was also present, noted as well, that his two divisions were expect great things of God and attempt great things for God. Carrie essentially told those ministers that they were not attempting great things because they did not expect great things. And so if you expect little, you will do little. If you expect much, you will give your life anticipating much. As I noted, the sermon both angered and empowered those to whom Carey preached. Then, in the same year, 1792 is an incredibly important year. Formation of the Baptist Missionary Society, the BMS, the famous sermon, the deathless sermon at at, um, Nottingham, England, at Friar Lane Baptist Church. 
And then third, and this is very significant, William Carey writes what is now his greatest work, brace yourself, an inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. An inquiry into the obligation of Christians to use means for the conversion of the heathens. Now, as I noted already, uh, many were saying, no great commission, that was just for the apostles. All we need is the church. All we need is the means of grace in the church for people that are already professed faith in Christ. Visible church here that's already established is all that God cares about. And, and some were going so far, and this is fascinating, some were going so far as to suggest that um, there would be a great conversion of the heathen nations at the end of the age, but that a bunch of other things had to happen first. And so until those things happen, it would be futile to go out and share the gospel with anybody. Now, let me tell you what that means for you and for me. We will make every excuse possible not to share the gospel. <laughs> the fact that the better part of the theologically uh, educated Reformed Baptist ministers of Carey's day spent their time trying to argue out of doing foreign missions, and I would imagine local missions, proves that we, like them, will make every excuse we can not to do what Jesus wants us to do. Now, Carey did have a post-millennial hope. And here, again, we won't fault him. He is a man of his time. Um, He was reading a lot of Jonathan Edwards. Jonathan Edwards believed that the scriptures taught that the world was going to be Christianized, um, that that it would be fully Christianized, Post the millennium, that there would be a there would be a glorious day of golden latter day Christianization of the world, where all the nations in all their fullness and and Edwards would appeal to passages like the earth will be full of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea and and um, other like minded passages and and Carey came to share in that expectation. He was very much driven by this anticipation of a world that would be Christianized. Now, he would find himself frustrated toward the end of his life in his labors in India because he didn't see the fruit that he thought he would see. That's one of the dangers, by the way, of post-millennialism, in my humble but accurate opinion. Um, uh, (laughs) If you're post-millennial, go easy on me after this talk. Um, But Kerry was driven by that, And he was zealous to see God's glory fill the earth, for which we should ever be thankful. Now, there was also a connection, very briefly, between Edwards and Carey by way of the influence of David Brainerd, about whom we'll hear more tomorrow. In the inquiry, in Carey's book, he appealed to the labors of Brainerd among the Indians as a model of what to follow. He says in that book... Mr. David Brainerd, about the year 1743, was sent as a missionary to some Indians where he preached and prayed, and after some time of extraordinary work, conversion was wrought, and wonderful success attended his ministry. What Kerry's looking for is examples. He can set before people to say, this is why we need to go to the nations. And he finds in Brainerd an exceptional example of a man who was deeply committed to taking the gospel to people who have never heard the gospel, who knew nothing about Christianity, and who were living under the darkness of heathenism. 
Well, in the following spring, at the age of 33, Kerry would head for India. Now, as I just jump forward quickly, um, I want to mention also the impact of Brainerd on Kerry by way of his commitment to prayer. If you want to understand the foreign missionary movement via William Carey, you have to understand how influenced he was by David Brainerd's own example of prayer. Uh, Carey will write, when he's in India, he will write uh, an agreement with two other men called the uh, Sarampur Agreement. And it is basically their treaties for foreign missions in India, their commitment. It's sort of their constitution, as it were. And in the Sarampur Agreement, this is what the 10th article reads. Let us often look at Brainerd in the woods of America, pouring out his very soul before God for the perishing heathen, without whose salvation nothing could make him happy. I want you to think about that. Carrie is saying what's fueling him is, I want to be like David Brainerd, pouring out my soul to God as he was in the woods of Pennsylvania and New York and New Jersey for the salvation of the Indians, without which nothing could make him happy. I want you to think about that, without which nothing could make him happy. Now, Carrie also was influenced by his fellow Calvinistic Baptist. He had great uh, privileges afforded him to, to be such intimate friends with Andrew Fuller and Samuel Pierce is no small thing. These were two of the greatest uh, theologians in the entire history of the Baptist tradition. And the, the friendship and the camaraderie and the uh, theological encouragement that these men shared is unparalleled um, in their day and no doubt was part of fueling carry forward to take on what God was calling him to do. Now, I want to talk about cultural influences because it's not enough to know about theological influences. You have to understand what's going on in Britain at the time when God is doing all of this inside William Carey. Now, around the time that Carey's developing his theological commitments, he's being influenced by cultural developments. As Britain lost more and more of its influence, remember, The colonies have already formed. We're 20 years after the formation of uh, the colonies in America and our independence. And Britain is again at war with France, as it was throughout so much of its history. Britain is at war with France. Britain is losing its influence. And so in order to regain influence, and this is supremely important, in order to regain influence... Britain begins, begins sending out voyagers like Captain James Cook to find undeveloped lands and unreached peoples and to do worldwide explorations for the expansion of Britain. Now, why is that important? Because William Carey will say of Captain James Cook's voyages published in 1773... Reading Cook's voyages was the first thing that engaged my mind to think of missions. What he essentially says is, I didn't even know there were all these people out there. Now, I think one takeaway for us is, the more we live in our own sort of vacuum, the less we think about other people, unlike us, who need the gospel that we've had for so long. 
the more we live in a sort of a Western bubble, the less we think about the souls of men and women spread throughout the world. God was using secular exploration for the great movement that he was about to accomplish through William Carey. Now, at the same time, um, as uh, explorers were going out and lands were being, um, were being discovered, as it were, and as Britain was sending out troops and were sending out um, uh, colonies to these new lands, there were joint stock companies that were forming. The East India Company was the most famous of those. Uh, the East India Company was a voluntary company. It was not state-run. And, and these joint stock companies allowed different groups to come together and pool their resources so that they could buy and sell and trade and do business. And, and it was new. The world had never seen anything like this. And Kerry is looking on these joint stock companies, and he realizes if we had something like that for foreign missions, a voluntary society that was highly intentional, pooling resources where individuals could come together in a common cause for the spread of the gospel of the nations, that would be most advantageous. And so the Baptist Missionary Society, the BMS, is formed, patterned after the joint stock companies. Now, I think if there's another takeaway for us here is that while we do not want to do things in worldly ways and the BMS is going to be infiltrated by businessmen and it's going to become a burden to the soul of Kerry because it will be taken over later in his time in India by businessmen who will try to run it like a business rather than a ministry. One of the takeaways is that there are things we can learn about effectively reaching the nations with the developments and advancements God has brought about through the world. Technology in our day being one of those big things, thinking how we use technology to effectively reach the world. I mean, we have the Gutenberg printing press on steroids in our living rooms. And that, that's an understatement. You can't, even come up with, you can't even come up with a good analogy to explain the power of technology and what God can use that, how God can use that in reaching people around the world. Well, there is Captain James Cook's voyages. There is also the joint stock companies. And Britain's position in the world was teaching Kerry that the method, was teaching Kerry the method as well as the idea of foreign missions. Uh, I love this. David Bebbington says, Britain's position taught Kerry the method as well as the, the, the idea of foreign missions, and it is not surprising that he worked as he worked at his cobbler's bench. He had a map of the world in front of him to gaze at, il- illustrating the religious condition of the various peoples. So as he worked in his cobbler's bench, he was looking at a map of the, wor- the world, thinking where God wanted to send him and to whom he would go with the gospel. Well, the fruit of Kerry's labor, quickly... Uh, Kerry is in India for seven long years, and as many of you probably know, he didn't see a convert for seven years. He is laboring there for seven long, toilsome, lonely years. We'll talk about some of the hardships here in a minute that he faced. And yet, after seven long, lonely years of laboring in India, he saw his first convert, Krishna Powell. Uh, The tree of the mission work that Kerry had singularly planted was about to bear fruit in abundance. Uh, Krishna, the, the first convert, was not alone in the early missionary fruit experience by Kerry. 
Kerry himself gives a record of other converts who were being converted at exactly the same time as Krishna Pal was being converted there in that early work in Sarampur, India. By the way, Sarampur is just to the northeast of Calcutta. And Kerry had chosen that as a very strategic location to best advance the cause of the gospel throughout the rest of India. On December 5th, of 1800, uh, Kerry mentions not only Krishna Pal, but he mentions uh, another convert, uh, Gukul. And this is heartbreaking, by the way. Listen to this. December 5th, Kerry writes, Yesterday evening, Gukul and Krishna Pal prayed in my room. This morning, Gukul called upon us and told us that his wife and two or three more of his family had left him on account of the gospel. I actually think Gukul is a more important convert than Krishna Pal, even though you almost always only hear about Krishna Pal in everything that you read. Gukul had eaten of Krishna's rice, who being of another caste, Gukul had lost his. Um, both men declared their willingness to join us and obey our Savior's commands. Gukul and his wife had a long talk but she continued determined and has gone to her relations. So seven long years without seeing a convert, and then one of the two loses his family for trusting in the Lord Jesus. Concerning the baptism of the first convert, Krishna Pal Kerry wrote December 29th, Yesterday was a day of great joy. I had the happiness to desecrate the Ganges. I love that. He actually said he polluted the Ganges because the Ganges was the river that was laden with heathen superstitions and idolatrous practices and ideologies and, the, and this beautiful, beautiful picture of the first, think about this, the first Christian convert in the entirety of this country's long history, so to speak, in that river. And Carrie's seeing God desecrating by baptizing, he says, the first Hindu, Krishna, and my son Felix, who will also become a burden to his father, sadly, later on. Now, what else was the fruit? Krishna is baptized, Gukul is baptized, Felix is baptized. Others are starting to come to Christ. David Bebbington again says Krishna Pal became the first of the indigenous Christians to go out preaching himself. That was the chief way the gospel spread very early on. It wasn't by foreign missionaries coming in. It was by Kerry pressing hard into seeing indigenous converts and then equipping them to send them out to preach the gospel. Now, that was not always without its attendant difficulties. Krishna became... Jealous of other converts after him who were ordained to preach the gospel before him. George Smith notes, the longing for converts now gave place to anxiety that they might continue to be Christians indeed, as in the early Corinth church. All did not perceive at once the solemnities of the Lord's Supper. Krishna Pal was jealous because the better educated Patumber had been ordained to preach before him. This made a schism for a time. Um, until these men came back together and lived together. Now, what advantages did Kerry possess in India? What was his strategy? And we are coming to a close here very soon. What was his strategy? 
You know, that's a, that's a difficult question. That's a question our own uh, denominational mission committees ask. What are the best strategies for reaching the lost? Well, for Carrie, preaching to common people. Preaching the unadulterated word to common people was his entry point in the strategy for launching the foreign mission movement to the world. Um, Kerry was determined to preach to ordinary people and to start churches among them. He very quickly became proficient in Bengali and Hindi. He sought to influence society from the bottom up, whereas almost everyone before him sought to influence from the top down. They would go to the elite. They would go to the educated institutions. Kerry turns previous mission work on its head, and he says, I will go to the common people because in a caste system, the common people are the people that I can reach with the gospel. It would be much harder to reach in a widespread way people at the top of the caste system. And by the way, Kerry repudiated the caste system because it was such a wicked system in its entirety. And anytime anyone was converted, he encouraged them to deny themselves, take up their cross, and to leave the caste system, insisting that they must. And so he started low, and he saw many people coming to Christ over the years. Indigenous converts gave impetus to the growth of the foreign mission movement out of India. Now, his second uh, labor was the translation of Christian literature. Um, From the start of the missionary venture, uh, Kerry had already translated the New Testament into Bengali by 1796. In fact, Kerry had tried to even write grammars of all the Indian languages, and he was in the process of doing it until they were burned up in a fire. This man was extraordinary in his labors. He knew if people were going to come to Christ, they needed the scriptures in their language. They needed prayers in their language. They needed the gospel in their language. They needed theological resources in their language. Now, um, the last strategy was a full full commitment to Christian practices. In 1802, Carrie drafted a proposal for Christian marriages. Now, in order to understand this, you have to understand in the caste system, marriage was a big deal. You can only marry within your caste. There were all kinds of pagan practices that accompanied the marriage ceremonies, even down to the fact that if a man died, his widow should be burned on top of his body. Carrie will actually be the one that brings that wicked practice to an end many years later prior to his death. But Carrie drafts a form of service for native Christian marriages, not much unlike that which you find in the, in the Church of England in his day. And he officiated the wedding of one of Krishna Pal's daughters to the son of a Brahmin. So now you have an unprecedented marriage. You have two people from different caste systems marrying one another in Christian marriage with William Carey officiating. By the way, what this shows is that he wasn't willing to compromise. That's the important point. He was not willing to compromise for expediency in mission, something so many are willing to do in our day. And this is what Kerry wrote. This evening, we all went to supper at Krishna's. We sat under the shade where the marriage ceremony had been performed. Tables, knives, forks, glasses. Having been taken from our house, we had a number of Bengali plain dishes, curry. He did get a lot of curry 
That's a, that's a perk of being in India. Fried fish, vegetables, etc. Uh, Carrie says, I fancy most of us ate heartily. This is the first instance of our eating at the house of our native brethren. And then listen to this. He said, we should have gone in the daytime, but we went at night. We began this wedding supper with singing. We concluded with prayer. Between 10 and 11, we returned home with joy. This was a glorious triumph over the caste. A Brahmin married to a Sudra in the Christian way. Englishmen eating with the married couple and their friends at the same table at a native house, allowing the Hindu chronology to be true that there had not been such a site in Bengali. That's amazing. Christianity making an inroad by Carrie saying, this is what's pleasing to the Lord. This is how Christian life is to be lived. This is what Christian practice is, unsynchronized and unadulterated. Now, hardships as we bring this to an end. Uh, Carrie had enormous hardships, enormous hardships. Uh, his wife, his first wife, was crazy. Um, in fact, one of his friends wrote, Mrs. Carrie is stark mad. She tried to kill him twice. She never wanted to go to India. Dorothy um, never wanted to go to India. Uh, he took her to India anyway. Their son, Peter, died one year after they arrived there. Um, she... And there have been clinical psychologists who have said she, she was insane based on everything written about her. Carrie, at one point, though he was burdened in heart over this marriage and over a woman who constantly demeaned him in front of his children, um, he, he was, he was um, encouraged to put her away in what would be an asylum of their day. And he would not do it. He would not do it. Um, Behind Dorothy's breakdown was her loss of her son, Peter, and obviously also the death of two daughters in infancy. Dorothy died in 1807. Carrie went on to marry twice after her death. His marriage was among the most troublesome of his challenges while laboring in India. And yet, and yet, he pressed through. He pressed through those challenges. There was also heresy, very quickly. One of his first um, British laborers and co, uh, co-ministers, William Adam, who came as a junior missionary to help him, um, he started having conversations with a famous intellectual Brahmin who led him to believe that Trinitarianism was not logically coherent. And Adam, who they ended up calling the second fallen Adam, um, Adam would go on to start the first Unitarian church out of Carey's mission work. Imagine that. You're laboring for the spread of the gospel, and now one of your counterpart, one of your contemporary colleagues, is now starting a, an apostate sect and church right next to you. As I noted earlier, the organizational structure of the BMS changed. Uh, became it started becoming uh, much more of a business and less of a ministry, and that weighed heavily on Carrie's heart. Now. Um, I want to bring this to a, a, a close here with this thought. Uh, Carrie was instrumental in so many other things in India. He served in colleges as professor. He started a college that exists to this day. He was a botanist. He served as a curator on the Linnaean Society. He was a Renaissance man. He advanced industry. Um, they're, they're, it's, it's astonishing 
astonishing, all that William Carey did. And yet, I want us to consider what it was that ultimately motivated him and drove him forward. Because at the end of the day, the only way we're ever going to be involved in foreign missions in any way, shape, or form, the only way we'll ever commit ourselves and our gifts to partnering with, laboring with, praying for, that is if we have the same heart. In the Sarampur Agreement, the first article, Kerry writes this. In order to be prepared for our great and solemn work, it is absolutely necessary that we set an infinite value upon immortal souls. That we often endeavor to affect our minds with the dreadful loss sustained by an unconverted soul launched into eternity. It becomes us to fix in our minds the awful doctrine of eternal punishment and to realize frequently the inconceivably awful condition of this vast country, he's talking about India, lying in the arms of the wicked one. If we have not this awful sense of the value of souls, it is impossible that we can feel a right in any part of our work. And in this case, it had better been for us to have been in any other situation rather than in that of a missionary. William Carey is and will always be remembered as the father of modern missions. He paved the way for the gospel to be carried to the heathen nations all over the face of the earth. He pressed on through enormous challenges with family, culture, organization, heresy. However, his life's achievement resulted in the spread of the gospel to Asia, Africa, the Pacific, and Latin America, his life and labors serve as an example to us that we too ought to exp- expect great things of God and attempt great things for God. Let me pray for us.